Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello and welcome to this episode of the LDS Perspectives Podcast. My name is Nick Galetti. I'm host of this episode. And our guest today is Terrell Givens. Terrell Givens was born in upstate New York, raised in the American Southwest, and did his graduate work in intellectual history at Cornell. He then earned his PhD at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in comparative literature, working with Greek, German, Spanish, Portuguese, and English languages and literatures. As professor of literature and religion and the James A. Bostwick Professor of English at the University of Richmond, Terrell teaches courses in Romanticism, 19th century cultural studies, and the Bible and literature. He has published on literary theory, British and European Romanticism, Mormon studies, and intellectual history. So welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So our topic for this episode is, is a fascinating teaching, uh, Becoming Like God. Now, Joseph Smith spoke of this in early sermons, uh, most notably to, to most people, probably the King Follett Discourse. And Lorenzo Snow, the church's fifth president, coined a well-known couplet, as man now is, God once was, as God now is, man may be. Uh, is this teaching that we can become like God an eternal doctrine, or in other words, a, a doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or is this something else, a folk doctrine, maybe? No, it's been a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ from antiquity to the present. What has changed is exactly what is meant by the expression like God, to become like God. There's, uh, there's all the room for all the controversy you could desire. <laughs> With that specific focus on like God, maybe you can expound on what the controversy is that you're referring to. Sure. Well, one of the problems that Mormon apologists have encountered is that they have been fond over the years of picking any number of proof texts from patristic authors, medieval authors, uh, theologians who refer to man becoming God. God became man, so man could become God, one famous example. And so it's easy to find abundant quotations taken out of context that seem to perfectly parallel Joseph Smith's King Follett teaching that we can become gods or like God. Uh, the problem is that for virtually all of Western theological history, there has been in place a radical ontological divide between the divine and the human. Kierkegaard referred to it as an infinite qualitative distance. And so the idea that we could become like God has been qualified in pre-modern discourse by the caveat, insofar as similitude is possible. How has this concept been traditionally or historically taught in the church? Well, there is a good deal of folk theology that has developed up around this notion, especially because in the Brigham Young years and because of the theologizing of people like Orson Pratt and others, the emphasis was often on world creation. Uh, Joseph Smith, of course, in section 132 referred to the possibility that men and women sealed in the everlasting covenant of marriage would um, produce seed eternally. And so that was extrapolated to mean that men and women who were exalted would create their own worlds, people them with their own spirits, and preside over those planets as God does over his. 
There isn't, as far as I can find, any authoritative scriptural or prophetic pronouncements with that degree of specificity. And I think it's an unfortunate misdirection that serves the church poorly, both because of the delusions of grandeur to which it can lead, and because the last thing we want to be known for to an outside community is the aspiration to have planets of our own. There was the series of anti-Mormon media campaign, the Godmakers. Godmakers, right. uh, that, That kind of played off of that. Certainly, some of that comes from the second part of that couplet, the as God now is, man may be. And there's a sense of needing further definition of that. Well, that's, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, right, we find in one of the epistles of Peter that we are invited to be partakers of the divine nature. And so this is one of the Protestant, right, notions that refer, is referred to as the, the idea of imputed righteousness, that in some way or shape, Christ will impart of his nature to us. And that is presumably one way in which that scripture finds fulfillment. We participate in the divine nature, not by any native ability or acquired virtue, but as a free gift that Christ gives us. So that's one way of of reading that we may become like God. That's a pretty vague description, really. Yeah. Becoming like God is the title of the gospel topics essay that the church put out that has 56 footnotes, 10 statements by presidents of the church. It addresses this topic in in nine different sections or areas. It would seem that there's much that people can really study and read from that essay on this subject. We'll definitely post a link to that essay with the posting of this episode at ldsperspectives.com. But others have written on this subject, including yourself. Uh, Given your formal education in intellectual history and world literature, what are some other examples in world history that have taught something similar? Well, the idea of theosis, right, as it's technically called, goes all the way back to the very, very earliest religious texts that exist. And what I always have found striking is that this possibility that man may become God or godlike always engenders both a kind of euphoric enthusiasm and excitement on the one hand, and a kind of a dread, a kind of sense of trespass on the other. And you see this bifurcation both in ancient texts and you find it in biblical texts, you find it in mythological treatments. Think of how often in Greek mythology, for example, mortals who aspire to become divine are punished by becoming, right, spiders for eternity, for example, (laughs) in one instance. Uh, Think of the Tower of Babel, which seems to be another kind of allegory about the dangers of aspiring to, to be like God. In the earliest religious tradition, which I mentioned, Mesopotamian religion, the earliest creation narrative that goes back about 2000 millennia BC is Atrahasis. And in this narrative, there is a council of the gods, whereby the gods want to create some race of humans that will function effectively as their slaves and servants. But to do the work of the gods, it's deemed necessary to endow them with an eternal spirit. So we also get here kind of a first version of human preexistence. So they take a divine spirit, they put it into the human body, but then they're careful to remark that they cast a kind of what Mormons would recognize as a veil of forgetfulness over these mortals, lest they remember their divine origins and aspire to return to the place of the gods. So there in the earliest narrative on this subject, you have it, right? The kind of fear that there's something not quite right and dangerous and threatening about humans wanting to become like God. And I think that's one reason why the church decided to put out a gospel topics 
page on this subject. Unlike all of the other gospel topics, which are historical in orientation and which are mostly aimed at allaying concerns and confusion on the part of members, this essay seems to me to be more directed outward because unease with the doctrine of theosis doesn't arise from within the church as much as it arises from without. So I think that's why it was treated. You had a presentation on your website called Finding the Divine in the Human, Romantic Angst and the Collapse of Transcendence. You quoted Parley P. Pratt in that article as saying, God, angels, and men are all of one species. Now, this goes to support that at least in early church, this concept they taught with some degree of comfort, that it was part of what they taught early on. But in that same essay, you make this very bold assertion that theosis is the most dangerous potentially corrosive idea in theological history. How do you support that assertion? Well, if you think about liberal humanism or secular humanism as they have evolved, especially in the modern era, right, most believers of all denominations recognize that one of the the dangers or threats of secular humanism is that it exalts human potential without limits at the expense of any recognition of transcendent or superior powers to our own. So I think I think it's intrinsically a, an idea that leads to a kind of hubris and a kind of false sense of independence and the possibility of, of, of self-transcendence independent of any Christ or fatherly model to show the way there. So I think that's the sense in which I think it's dangerous. I also think it's proved dangerous in the Mormon case because I think we have we've missed the most important lesson of theosis as it's taught in the scriptures. The most important thing that I think the Latter-day Saint scriptures add to a very vague biblical set of references to theosis is the ascension narrative of Enoch in Moses chapter 7. And as Fiona and I have tried to point out in our writing, we think that this is the clearest text that we have that manages to convey some sense of what is meant by participation in the divine nature. And in this instance, of course, what happens is that Enoch beholds God And what he sees stuns him because he beholds the heavens weeping, or in our version, God the Father weeping over the misery of his creation. So we think it's particularly striking that in the one instance of where we get a glimpse into what it might be like to be God, to acquire a godlike perspective, what we see is infinite compassion and an infinite shared suffering, not infinite power or dominion. And that's where I wish the idea had taken us as Latter-day Saints. I want to say just a word about the quote you cited from Parley Pratt about men, God, and angels, all of all one species. That is the idea, and that's the most economical expression of that idea, that most radically separates Latter-day Saint versions of theosis from all prior versions. Because if we are of the same species, and we can become like the Father, then there isn't any ontological divide. There isn't any immense distance that necessarily separates us from the kind of being that God is. And that's where it acquires its really threatening, blasphemous edge in the view of most Christians today. This concept of theosis, as you talk about with becoming like God, and the difference that we see between some of the world narratives and myths that have been presented as opposed to maybe the ones that are afforded by the LDS scripture and thought, is the main piece as you are presenting it that we still adhere to an omnipotent, omniscient being, but one that also emphasizes omnibenevolence. Well, I'm comfortable with omnibenevolence, but I don't like those other terms as they're (laughs) applied to the Mormon deity. Okay. 
And I, I can say a few words about why sure. they, they cause unease in me. Let me start with omnipotence, all power. Well, I think most Mormon theologians would agree that Mormonism believes in a self-limiting God, as a few other narrowly defined theological traditions do. But that's generally it runs against the grain of the omnipotence of God as understood in classical theism. But Mormons believe that God voluntarily limits himself. He does not interfere with human agency. He keeps human agency sacrosanct, and so he can't save us against our will. So that's an example of where, you know, omnipotence doesn't have the same value for, for Latter-day Saints as it would for a Calvinist, say. Sure. Um, in terms of omniscience, I'll tell you why I don't like that term. Omniscience, when we talk about an omniscient narrator or an omniscient perspective, what we really mean is a perspective that is outside of any perspective. Omniscience seems to imply a position outside of space, outside of time, outside of any subjective positioning. And what I think is remarkably ironic is that some people, including some dissidents, have found the Mormon God too limiting because he's finite, he exists in space, he exists in time. He's corporeal. Whereas I find the omniscient deity of some theological models to be... In air bit, quotes. Omniscient in yeah, air quotes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, thanks for filling that in for me. <laughs> to be a bit, a bit horrifying. And here, let me give you an example of why that's the case. One recent treatment of, of theology had the author saying this, perhaps God values the aesthetic as much as he values the humane. And so... Maybe if God has to make a choice from his omniscient perspective, beauty trumps human well-being. And so one reason why there might be suffering in the world is because God chooses to embrace an aesthetic universe rather than a compassionate universe. Well, it seems to me that's a perfectly reasonable extrapolation from a view of God as outside of human considerations, a God without body parts or passions, a God who's not moved, who doesn't see the universe through the perspective of the human individual. I think the beauty and power of the Enoch narrative is that we are taught there that the divine perspective is the most intensely subjective perspective that one could imagine. Enoch sees that God sees the world through the lens of human misery, through empathic identification with human misery. When Solomon asks for the gift of wisdom, we're told that what he is given is an understanding heart. So here I think we have this, this again, it's this really counterintuitive notion in Mormon theology that to acquire the divine nature means to acquire a kind of wisdom that always emanates from a lived human relationship. And I would much rather envision and adore and trust in a God whose judgments and valuations are made on the basis of his shared subjectivity rather than some dispassionate, omniscient perspective outside of space, time, and human considerations. Okay. So not the distant ruler that leads on a throne that, that has a very this great chasm in between. No, that's right. The Emmanuel, the, the one who is with us yeah. uh, at all times, vicariously and empathically. And uh, I think that's, that's, that's a marvelous conception of the divine. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've noticed, at least in my limited experience as a missionary in the South and, and some of the people that I've talked to outside of the church that are critics of this teaching, sometimes they see divinity as some sort of limited quantity supply, a divine economy where 
there's going to be only so much God. And if people become like God, that somehow that diminishes God in some way. Have you encountered anything like that? <laughs> um, yeah, I think of, of, in a way, I, I think, you know, most humans, and sadly, I think most Mormons as well, operate always in terms of a kind of zero-sum mentality when it comes even to eternal things, which is one reason why Mormons have been so resistant to a universal salvation or to progression through the kingdoms, is, you know, St. Augustine once wrote that the delight of the blessed in heaven will consist in part on their ability to behold the suffering of the damned in hell. <laughs> so there's a sense, right? And it's, it's like I, I have had this conversation with my wife who really loves it when we get upgraded to first class. And I say, well, yeah, I like flying first class too, but I think it is worth considering that, you know, if I said to, to somebody who'd never flown, I'm going to strap you to an armchair and make you sit there for eight hours and bring you stale Coke products every two hours, <laughs> they wouldn't think that was a big deal. But we love first class because it's better than coach, <laughs> right? Okay. So if we see the sufferings of all of those in the cattle car. And so, yeah, I think there is kind of this human propensity to, to associate value with relative superiority. And how can God be God if we're all sharing in that attribute? And of, and of course, the way Genesis has come down to us, I think in a fairly obviously corrupt form, is that God is portrayed as jealous, right? When he says that day in the garden, behold, they have become as one of us. Mormons here, there, they have become as one of us. Isn't that wonderful? A unification. Yeah, unification, an ascent, right? But the whole Christian world sees that as, oh no, they've become as one of us. We've got to cut off their access to the tree of life. And uh, so I, I, I would hope we can move beyond that kind of mentality. And I think our version of theosis is a good step in that direction. From everything that you've been saying so far, it's been kind of interesting because when I try to think of what the concept of the, the average Latter-day Saint has with regards to becoming like a God or being like God, that it actually can be quite nebulous in the sense that this really has to do with who we perceive God to be. Right. In that sense, what is everyday theosis for the Latter-day Saints? <laughs> well, I have to tell you this story. There were some years ago, I had a colleague at the University of Richmond who just, just even to mention the word Mormonism would would give him hives. He was so <laughs> hostile to the church and its theology. And one day I pressed him to tell me what, what was his real grievance against the church. And he said, okay, I'll tell you. Do you really think a million years from now you'll be creating worlds and peopling them with your own posterity? And I said, well, I'll answer that question if you answer one first. What are you going to be doing a million years from now? <laughs> and he said with great confidence, growing in the grace of Christ. And I said, no, 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 that's not fair. July 12th, four o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> one million years from today, I knock on your door. What will I find you doing? And he thought a moment, and then all the air went out of his sails. And he said, I see your point. Anything I could say would sound absurd. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what I think, I feel like I've discovered in the course of, of my study of anti-Mormonism through the last century and, and more is, is that what... The, the, the danger of heresy is not the particular belief, it's the particularity of the belief. It's not what it is Mormons believe, it's the specificity with which they make these claims. And so Mormons tend to be very specific, right? Colleen McDaniel and others in their book on heaven, uh, for example, have, have written that Mormons have a more fleshed out, detailed version of heaven than any other Christian tradition. And really all they mean by that is that Mormons populate it with humans and relationships and domestic kinds of interactions. And many of the early saints, Parley Pratt and others, were quite convinced 
that, you know, we'll have homes and gardens and commerce and life will carry on pretty much the same as it does now. There's nothing really doctrinal that has been said along those lines. But I think that that's kind of the projection that most Mormons have, that God is just a perfectly benevolent and virtuous individual enmeshed in an endless web of beautiful human relationship. That in and of itself can be differing from the notions that I have heard. I, I spent some time recently at, a, at an event that I worked that was for an, another faith, and it was interesting that— Oh, you there, played the organ for the Episcopalians, too? No, I did not. <laughs> I, I, I did sound work for, for another, another <laughs> okay. faith for a little bit. It was interesting to see how much time they spent on the doctrine of sanctification, as they call it, but how little they talked about why why that was relevant, where, where was that leading them to, and so on. With this doctrine, being like God, becoming like God, is that the goal? Is that the, the, the big golden carrot? Is that the why that we well, do everything I, in the church? I've certainly heard that criticism, and it's certainly been directed at me personally by non-Mormons from time to time. What a, what a depraved and selfish motivation. Well, I don't, I don't know anybody and I certainly have never myself felt motivated to get up and read my scriptures because, boy, that's going to that's gonna give me deific status someday. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think so. I think, you know, the model that really is the projection of heaven for Latter-day Saints is Zion. And I love the conception of Zion as it's given us in the book of Moses. And this also speaks to exactly, you know, what might we know about heaven? Because what occurs, of course, in that vision that Enoch has is that, this, is that Zion comes down from heaven and Zion rises up from the earth. And then he's got this, right, this beautiful passage where they'll fall on each other's necks and, and Zion will become one. Well, what's happened there is the distance between a perfected human society and a celestial realm has evaporated, and the two blur seamlessly into each other. So I think that that's a pretty solid scriptural doctrinal foundation for Mormons to project into the heavenly sphere some kind of communal existence in which heaven is largely defined in terms of celestialized relationships among a loving community that begins in the family and extends outwards. And so I think it's perfectly plausible in the light of that scriptural prototype to believe that heaven will be more like our earthly existence than maybe we have anticipated. So there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and what you're proposing is that God the church, God the people, God the society will join that Godhead in a similar existence. Yeah, in some way. It's, it's, uh, it's like my son Nathaniel has written. He said, notice that, there, that there's no such thing as a Zion individual. Right? Nobody talks about a Zion individual. You're a right. Zion person. No, they're only Zion communities. So there is something ultimately that identifies God with community. And I think that's I think that's a very, very beautiful idea. You know, Charles Taylor in his magnificent study, A Secular Age, argues that what happens as we shift into modernity from the Middle Ages is that a completely theocentric heaven oriented vertically becomes a completely egalitarian, flattened society oriented horizontally. And you have to choose between the two. You're going to be a Christian with a theocentric version or you're going to be a secularist with this other model. 
And, you know, the, the genius of Mormonism was that he said, no, no, it, it has to be both. Right. It has to be both. And so we extend this relationship in both directions in the celestial sphere. Why should it have to be either or? If I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that the average Latter-day Saint doesn't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be like God today. I don't, I don't think that ever enters into our religious kind of conceptual universe, really. Yet it is a doctrine. It is. It's a... But by the same token, I don't think that for your average Christian, they're motivated by any particular version of heaven. I don't think anybody gets excited about playing harps. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I don't think in either case it's fair to impute to that theological val um, doctrine any kind of motivational function. Yeah. One of the topics that's brought up in the church's essay, and one that I think is, again, another critique that is leveled against this teaching, is monotheism versus polytheism. Maybe you could speak to that for a moment, is, is how that kind of dovetails, if you will. Yeah, you probably need a separate podcast, because this is a really <laughs> rich subject, and it's one that is getting richer by the day as increasing numbers of biblical scholars and archaeologists recognize what is, has long been undeniable to many, and that is that, that early Judaism was clearly not monotheistic. There was a God the Father, there was a God the Son, there was a consort, Astarte or Asherah. Daniel Peterson, among others, has written of this tradition. Um, there are clear evidences in the Old Testament, even as it has come down to us, of a plurality of gods, of councils of gods, divine assemblies. I can understand why, for public relation purposes, Mormonism wants to insist that it's monotheistic. And maybe in some sense it is, because, but I, I, I mean, I'm not even sure that in any sense it's monotheistic. The early Christians certainly were not monotheistic. Um, Fiona and I have charted in a book coming out this October with Deseret that among the first, for the first couple of centuries, especially in Eastern Orthodox tradition, there was a clear recognition that. Christians were polytheists, that they believed in a God the Father and God the Son as two separate distinct entities. The Trinity comes about under pressures to conform to monotheism to distinguish themselves from pagan polytheists. So I think Mormons are unduly uncomfortable with the purported implications that we are polytheists. Of course we are. I guess the technical term is henotheist. We recognize a plurality of divinities but worship one. That in and of itself, that's a term I haven't even heard before. Say that one again. Yeah, henotheistic. Henotheistic. Right. What's the origin of that? I think heno, right? The Greek word for one. Okay. Um, hen. And it means you worship one God, but that you acknowledge there may be others. The presence of others. Just as Hindus, for example, have thousands of gods, but individuals choose those gods to whom they will pay particular devotion. Interesting. We just don't believe we choose that it's given us that there is a God of our sphere whom we recognize. Excellent. I love when I learn new things. <laughs> so going back to the statement, as man now is, God once was, as God now is, man may be, that's still a true doctrine. Well, it's hard to say, you know. But it depends on what we bring to that. It depends what you bring to it. It also depends on what you consider to constitute, quote, official doctrine, because the King Follett discourse has never been canonized. So there is no canonical expression of that idea. Over the years, one can track the history of the use of the King Follett Discourse, and it has fallen in and out of church manuals. It has fallen in and out of the official history of the church. And so there seems to be a kind of recurrent uh, uncertainty 
as to exactly how tightly we are going to bind ourselves, I think especially to the first half of that couplet, that God himself was once human. Most of us forget that the fact that God was once human doesn't mean necessarily that he began as a human and progressed, though that's the usual reading we give it, but we believe Christ was divine before he was human. There are other possible ways of of going with that. Yeah, and there's much that hasn't been revealed per se. More has been revealed about the second part. That's right. So as we discuss this doctrine or this teaching, if you will, we need to be careful then about what kind of background we have with this, what we bring to our interpretation of that, and in a sense, what we think God is and what he does. Absolutely, yeah. Your new book kind of approaches this subject. Uh, So we'll put a link to that at the posting of this at ldsperspectives.com, along with a link to the Becoming Like God essay at lds.org. So thank you again for coming in and talking with us about it. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Nick. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.